Welcome. You're about to be ushered past the velvet rope and into a world of hyper-effective salesmanship that's understood and used only by the world's most notoriously rich and successful marketers. We're taking a journey deep inside the human brain, past the surface clutter, and into the psychological insights to answer the one crucial question, what makes people buy? I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, along with the most ripped off and respected copywriter alive, John Carlton, and this is Psych Insights for Modern Marketers. Hey, it's Kevin Rogers. Welcome back to our two-part series where I dive deep into John's twisted brain to find out what really goes on when he sits at a keyboard to write, whether it's copy, uh, fiction, or just a simple Facebook post. Hope you enjoyed part one. If you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend going back and doing so. There's some amazing takeaways in there, stuff I've already applied to my own writing, and I'm sure it'll help you too. Let's jump right into part two, where we left off with John uh, talking about his love of song lyrics and how he uses the rhythm of music to influence his own writing. I studied lyrics in songs, and, and I've, I've, I've been kind of semi-cursed, but also blessed with remembering most of the lyrics, most of the songs that I've loved throughout my life. All the rock and roll, the 60s, the 70s. I can even hear songs you know, a few times now, and I, I'm always listening to the lyrics, because the lyrics are important to me, but not in a straight writing thing. It's more in the lyrical way the lyrics happen. That's why Mick Jagger is one of my favorite uh, uh, lyric writers. Also, John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys do hooks. These guys do bring in all these references, and they will lose people, but they you don't lose them because it's a rock and roll song. So right. it doesn't matter that people don't know what the words is. But it matters to me because when I write, there is a lyricism to it. There is a beat. There is a ba-dum, 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 ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and I have about I, I haven't counted them. I'm going to guess 50 of those those beats in my head of those little short things. Mm-hmm. And you and 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 like in a headline, trying to get a uh, a quick two line headline, it's you know there's a rhythm to it, and you get out of the rhythm and it's clunky. You stay in the rhythm and you have you know, and you really uh, you can actually use the wrong word, but if you're in rhythm. Uh, the reader will, will forgive you. The reader unconsciously senses that rhythm as reading. You know? Right. And uh, that, that's an unconscious process now, but that's part of the editing thing. If I go in there and I've got a three-syllable word that throws things out of the rhythm, then I get rid of it and I make it a one-syllable word. And there's plenty of words to choose from. You should never be trapped for a word, including using slang, mm-hmm. going back to the basics, you know, I went to the store and got milk. I went to the store and purchased milk. I went to the store and acquired some milk. You know, it's like, no, you got milk. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's, there's no need, there's no need to, 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 to get fancy there. Right. But you have to know why you're making that choice and it's because it's clunky without it. So there's clunky, there's lyrical, there's melodic, and there's that, that kind of jarring beat that's more like jazz, you know. And I think that thing you just read is, was, was kind of a jazz thing. It's almost like, you, yeah. you know, I've talked about the, uh, not word salad, but the word, uh, I think it's called word jazz by, uh, oh, I can't think of the guy's name now, so. Um, 
Yeah, it'll, it'll probably pop in my head. But this guy was doing these word jazz things oh, back in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, um, Nord- Nordine and, or um, yes, yeah. Ken Nordine, mm-hmm. and thank you for that. So, mm-hmm. so I, I first heard Ken Nordine as a teenager listening to these, you know, Stone DJs on FM down in Southern California. You know, when I had this transistor radio under the covers, you know, searching the dial for rock and roll, I happened to get into FM, which back then we only had about five stations down in Southern California. It just wasn't used. Everything was AM. And I, I, I was like discovering a gold mine right there in my in, in, in my bedroom. Hmm. And these guys started, you know, just without without you know announcement, they would just throw a fifteen minute Ken Nordine, you know, word salad rant in there. But he's talking about stuff, but it's poetry. It's there's sometimes he'd have like a jazz playing in the background, but he wasn't singing to the jazz. The jazz was, was an accompaniment, mm-hmm. but there was this sense of, of, of you, you couldn't leave. It was just this, it was like being in the ocean and rolling with the, with the tide and just being, you're surrendering yourself to the, to the rhythms and the, and the, and the, and the, the melodic element. And yet he was talking about stuff. It was kind of beatneck poetry in a way, but it was very, it was very, Visual. He wasn't. He didn't rely on the words. He relied on the visual elements of whatever words he used, and it was it was just magical for me because it's you know it, it, when you read it on the written page, uh, it's not the same. It, it, this was this was poetry written to be spoken and listened to and not read and and, and cogitated on. So, right that. That struck me very much, the whole idea of writing as, as a rhythmic uh, yes. exercise. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the same with comedy, that, you know, a, a pretty hack comic can get away in the, in the feature spot if he's got 20 minutes or something just on rhythm. If he's got a really good rhythm, he will train the audience, uh, like Pavlov's dog, to laugh on cue. Yeah without yeah. much substance. And so the, the, the coup de gras is the marriage of those two, right? Substance and, right. and lyrical rhythm. Uh, let's talk. Were you about, a fan of, uh, were, were you a fan of Teddy Youngman by chance? Um, I didn't know his stand up material quite as much, um, as I have more. He just rattled off, rattled off two liners, you know, take my wife, please. Right. And right. Play the, you know, and, and, you know, uh, Rodney Gainesville kind of expanded off of that, you know, these, right. These quips, these non sequitur quips, but you put him in a sit, and then, you know, then the ad, and, and you know, the study of, of comedy for me is very important to the, to the study of writing because when you, you, you go through Henny Youngman, which was, I think, good, I think it's worth to go back there. Then you get off into, people don't realize this, but guys like, um, uh, uh Burns and Allen and uh, Jack Benny mm-hmm. and Abbott Costello were getting into Dada existentialism. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize that they, 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 they think they were physical humor, you know, and all this stuff, but no, they're, they're on one side was like uh, Jack, uh, uh, red skeleton and Bob Hope just played old jokes, just tell the joke, mm-hmm. you know, have, have your thing and do that. The other side, if you look at, at early Abbott Costello, their TV show, it was existential. It was, it, it was data visual stuff that made no sense. That was even to a kid that was fascinating to watch because it was still funny, mm-hmm. but it it wasn't straight ahead joke telling. And then through there you get to uh, you get to George Carlin, and then you get to all of this stuff you know taking off, which is why American and British stand up and and comedy writing in general is just so superior to everything else in the world because it went off. It like got on a raft and went to a fresh new continent and just reinvented the whole genre. <laughs> so. 
You know, right. you ask most people around the world, you know, hey, you, who, you know, do, do, you, do you feel that you have a sense of humor? Yes. And they'll tell you a joke that they've memorized, you know, right, and it's right. like, well, okay, well, the next step up from that is wit. And then wit has to be immediate. And, you know, I'd, I'd much rather talk to somebody who's witty and never made me guffaw or spit out my coffee right. than I would with somebody who just can rattle off jokes that are funny, but it's, that gets tiresome. Right. But when you take wit to the next level, and then you're actually consciously bantering back and forth. You and I have done it. I'm sure you've got a dozen, you know, guys from the, from the comedy circuit you can do that with, where you get into that rhythm. Sometimes I notice uh, guys that get really good at it will stop on purpose, kind of embarrassed because they're like dominating the conversation because it's so freaking funny. But <laughs> right. you know, private privately they don't stop. You know, this right. it goes on and on and on, and it's like you're topping, but you're giving the guy an opening. Right. You never try to, you never try to win. There's no winning. It's only, it's only a cooperative it's, effort. Right. It's ting, It's penis. It penis. It's <laughs> it's uh, ping pong. You know. It's um, yes. It, it's about the volley. Yeah, that's a great. That's a that's a great great um, observation. You know, let's talk. And, for, and actually, that's 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 good writing too. Good writing is a cooperative effort between yeah. the writer and the reader. Hmm. Yeah, good point. You know, and I, I got to mention a modern day one-liner guy um, who's, you know, a little hacky, but overlooked, I think, is is Dan Whitney, Larry the Cable Guy, uh, who's a guy I started with back in clubs when he was nobody. He was Dan Whitney, and he came up with this character. But if, if, if you watch some of that, um, those country comic guys, white trash guys, uh, there's a there's a clip of those guys sitting and they're looking at old photos, uh, like I've, they, I've seen have that. You seen I've that? seen that. And man, man uh, with, is White there? Is uh, yeah, Ron White is there, and um, yeah. and all of them, and Jeff uh, Foxworthy, and but right. man, Larry is funny in that. I mean, and and I think that's because he has the mind, sh- sort of the short copy mind that that quick humor. He's used to thinking in the quip. In the one-liner, right, and I think that's why he excelled so much in that in that piece. But um, let's talk for a minute about adjectives, John. This is what got yeah. me down this whole idea of holding this interview with you about this, because I, I, this came up in in my um, copywriting group recently about how do I come off less hypey and over the top and hyperbolic. And um, Angie Cole gave somebody really good advice. She said, just strip away the adjectives. And uh-huh. start there and it reminded me that's a big rule of yours. When you first yeah. brought me on as a writer, that was your rule to me. You said, give me the first draft void. I don't want to see one adjective. So let's talk about adjectives and how they can confuse uh, the writer into thinking they're writing something good. <laughs> yeah. Um, the word uh, amazing is, is an adjective, right? Mm-hmm. It was, it was an amazing, it was amazing time. It was an amazing, uh, I, I, I just talked with somebody whose only way to add weight, I guess, to what he was saying was to use the word amazing. That's, uh, uh, that's why that word was in there. And for me, it was like every time he said it, I would wince a little bit because <laughs> it's like, it, it, it becomes meaningless. And then I, you right. know, and, and long ago I was thinking about that. And I think, in uh, Strunk and White's Elements of Style, they also suggest that you write without adjectives. So this is not new for me. This this goes back. Uh, Hemingway didn't use uh, adjectives. Uh, Hunter Thompson, who modeled himself on Hemingway. on Hemingway, did use adjectives, but he used 
he used them in ways that were jarring. So, so he knew what he was doing. He was conscious, consciously using it. And using the right adjective or you know, the right, let's call it a pump-up word. Um, you know, it was the most amazing time I've ever had in my life. Is not a story. Right. That, that tells nothing. I don't, I, I don't understand what you think is amazing. I don't even have a definition of amazing because it's just a blah word. Right. You know, it's not a power word. Um, so if you just went through your writing and you saw, and you saw where you put in these empty, lifeless, bloated, overused words, which are almost always adjectives or adverbs, I guess, or, or words that are trying to add weight to whatever the main word is. You know, I, I, I took a, I took a cross country trip with my pal, Kevin. I took an amazing trip across these wonderful United States with my best, you know, best friend, Kevin, doesn't make it any more powerful. Doesn't, right. doesn't do anything to that. You're better off going back to the simpler yeah. who, what, why, where, when, how, you know, just explain stuff. You can write very powerfully just sticking to the facts, you know, just doing that dragnet thing, just, just the facts, ma'am. Um, yeah, it actually makes and, it less interesting when you add in all those adjectives because you feel like you, the person's already decided that the story needs to be incredible. And that now there's this pressure for you to agree. Whereas if you just say, <laughs> I took this trip across country with my friend Kevin, and then you stop there, they're like, well, what happened? <laughs> they want to know. That's true. That also is a good setup for the next sentence to either be like a one word or a very short thing. You know, I, t I took a trip with my best friend, Kevin, across the United States in late 1976, period. It was the worst time of my life, you know, or, you know, we almost died right outside of, of every major city, you know, and, you know, and then you set the story up, you know, so right. you don't, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, lots of storytelling that has to do with journalism and the who, what, when, where, why, how, uh, thing is is mega important. Give people a sense of what's going on, why they're reading it. Reinforce their sense that I know what's going on. I just watched part of a movie last night on um, on um, Tim Buckley's son. Um, oh, Jeff Buckley. Yeah, Jeff Buckley. And uh, you know, it was 15 minutes into the film before uh, before they finally said, you know, Southern California, 19. 82, you know, so, okay, now I know where we're at, you know, and then they abruptly went into a flashback of his father and, and, you know, and waited a while before they let you know it was, you know, New York City, 1967 or something. And it's just, it was just, why are you doing this? Why, you know, just give me the stuff. And this all reminds me, just a really quick story. Mm -hmm. Up in Virginia City is an old bar called the Red Dog Saloon. And the Red Dog Saloon was like the birth of the San Francisco movement back in the 60s. The hippies started there, the whole music scene with the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, all of that stuff started up in Virginia City, which is right near Reno here, an old mining town that helped fund the Civil War with the silver and gold strike it discovered. It's still got wooden sidewalks. It looks like a, a town. They film there a lot. It is the town they referenced in Bonanza when they talked about Virginia City. It's a great old town, about as high as Tahoe on its own mountain, very stark. I've lived up there. I've played music up there. I have friends up there. I love the place. It's like stepping back in time. However, this old bar called the Red Dog is where the, the scene happened. All the artists, all the what became the people that, that created Burning Man and made San Francisco the, the weird, you know, left coast city it is and all of that all started in this little bar mm. in this town in the mid-60s. This woman 
<laughs> tried to do a documentary on the thing. There were a lot of the guys still living, still living up there who were there at the beginning. One of the guys, I won't name him, he's he's passed away now, uh, uh, you know, RIP, but he was there. He was instrumental, and he built a radio DJ career on that where he didn't talk a lot, but he he played the music and he knew all the characters. He knew you know Jerry Garcia and all that stuff. So this woman decides to do a documentary on the Red Dog find some of these people and then I get to watch some of the rushes that she's taken of the mm-hmm. of the interviews of the mm-hmm. film interviews. So she captures this guy who was there and she asks him a story about the, the the bar, a specific incident that happened in the bar. And the guy stumbles and mumbles and finally says, ah, you know, it was just it was just oh it was wild man. You had to be there. <laughs> and I wanted to strangle the guy. And and she said, Yeah, this is the way they all are. They 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 haven't they haven't processed the stories. They're not good storytellers, you know. And she was searching for, and she finally found one. And actually, her name is Mary Work, and I believe it's called The Red Dog. But it's it's a documentary worth checking out. I'm sure it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, she finally found her storytellers, and that was great. But I think about this guy all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, how dare you waste Oxygen, breathing, living, eating, being on Earth, being at these essential historical things that I want to hear more about and not be able to tell the story. How dare you? You know, you should be drawn and quartered for this. There's no excuse for it. And a lot of it is just, you know, you don't have to be some kind of eloquent, you know, cowboy poet or something. Do the how you know, who, when, where, why, how, and right. know, with whatever, the old journalism thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, as much as I can remember, it was uh, late summer, you know, it was an evening, you know, uh, Joe and Bob and Susie and I were at the corner of the bar, and, you know, we were there drinking because it had been a hard day to have Just tell me the story. Just get the basics out there. Try to reconnect. Right. And then if you want to go back and make it a little better, then you can start doing stuff. But don't tell me it was an amazing time. It was... It was it was so much fun, you know. We were wild and crazy. That tells me absolutely nothing. Yeah, that's... and so so using those weak words that don't mean anything, that are a hucksters and a hackers, uh, you know, pretend way to add weight to the thing is is it's all bullshit. And and if you strip your writing, and in fact, I think what I told you was to take your writing. And then go in and strip out all the adjectives, not just to make it better, but now look at it. And mm. does it need something else? Because what that forces you to do is use what I call power words, which are usually verbs, which are the action words. So if, if you look at your copy and you take out all the amazings and, and wild and crazies, and, and you're left with kind of blah, limp writing, that you, know, you say, so I went down to the store and I got some milk and I came back and made a sandwich and ate it. How can you pump all of that up? You know, it's not, I, I made the most amazing sandwich in the world, although that might work. But, you know, it's, it's like I, I waltzed down to the store and, you know, stole some milk and, and mayonnaise and, and bread and whatever. How, how can you start to pump this up? Where does the story come in? Don't make stuff up, but where can you pump all of this up? And it comes with that bringing in different styles searching for the right word to use, not not a lazy word. Those right words are almost never uh, adjectives, but they are great verbs. Like the, I, I talk about the difference between I walked down the street, I went down the street uh, to more active. I waltzed down the street. I floated down the street on, on a cloud of love. I... I uh, ran, you know, I bolted down the street in a panic, you know, I, you know, whatever, there's all kinds of different ways. And each of those, 
gives you an image, you know, and you can you can pluck, you can talk about, you can take uh, scenes from songs, from rap, from movies, from all kinds of stuff, uh, and steal those lines or incorporate those lines, you know, and, right. and bring all kinds of other references in. It's a powerful way to to be a, a complete writer as opposed to relying on I walk down the street. You shouldn't do that all the time. If, if it interferes with the story or it calls attention to the writing, then you don't do that. But every once in a while, you want to pump stuff up. So you want to start with a bland writing that goes too far. And that, that's an important part in advertising. You want to go too far in your headlines, your writing, so that you can bring it back in the next edit and keep bringing it back until it's where you want it. But go ahead and lie your head off and do everything on the first draft. Just make it powerful and then go back and, and make it more, more palatable, make it more real, make it, make it truthful and ethical and, and everything it needs to be before it's released. But it's hard to pump up boring writing. It's better to just get in there and make your statements and then kind of massage it and work it out. So when I write first drafts, I'll often throw in uh, adjectives. Mm. Like, it was an amazing time. But I kind of either physically circle them or I mentally circle them. Because I'm going to go back and that ain't going to make it through the next edit. Interesting. And, and what that That's kind of a note to me that mm. <clears throat> this needs <clears throat> this needs pumping up. This needs some uh, this needs some juice or mojo put put into it, but I don't need to stop right now and do that. I'll do that on edit. Great writing is rewriting. That's right, man. Uh, I'm gonna. You know, it's funny. I have um, elements of style in my backpack, <laughs> and so I found um, the piece about adjectives. I thought it was worth reading. Um, he yeah, says, let's hear it. Let's hear it. He says, uh, write with nouns and verbs, not with adjectives and adverbs. And this is the line I love. The adjective hasn't been built that can pull a weak or inaccurate noun out of a tight place. <laughs> Ooh, that's nice. That's really nice. <laughs> and so true. And, and it's because of lazy writing. You know, we do kids no favor by releasing them from having to write papers and write stuff in, mm. in, in school. I mm. think, I think, are, are your kids being asked to write or they write? Oh yeah. Reports They're up? in essays. Oh, and they yeah. are. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of the reasons, I mean, my first stuff, I remember I was assigned because I put a tack in, uh, in, in Candy's seat next to me in sixth grade, <laughs> urged on by Tony, who be, was later to become the quarterback of the high school team. She's going, go on, put the tack in. Okay. I'll put the tack. She sat down. It hurt. She started crying. And I immediately felt like a, a, a complete asshole and turd. And I went up to the teacher, and he said, who did this? And I said, I did it. I, I said, I am so ashamed of myself. I, it's, I, I didn't know it was going to hurt. It was supposed to be funny like it was in the Three Stooges. Right. And, and he said, you know, I appreciate you coming forward. Uh, you know, I know you're a good guy. I, I think you made a mistake. I said, no, I think I need to be, I think I need to make this a lesson. He says, okay, I'll write an essay. And I didn't know what it was. I wrote S period A period, you know, capital A. I, I didn't know what an essay was, but I wrote this essay on, I, I don't remember, you know, something on, you know, respecting other people's rights, some bullshit. And then he says, okay, this is good, but this is what an essay is. An essay is sitting down and not, you know, in a given period of time, getting your thoughts down on a particular subject and, you know, making sense, making an argument. Uh, not, you know, maybe you, you can introduce debate, but you're... You know, you, 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 this is you. This is your writing. And, and, and it just stuck with me all this time. That, that was the first time I'd ever really thought about writing as this, 
this way to get down what was going on in my head to a different way to make an argument. And this is sixth grade. We're still bullying each other to make, to, to make our points. It's like, I'm right because I can kick your ass, you know, right. you know, and, and then to be able to persuade through writing and stuff and be able to get that stuff down, all, you know, led to me using journals and, mm. and uh, just writing all the time. And of course that's my latest little thing in, in the mastermind that I run. I'm getting all these guys to keep journals. Mm -hmm. you know, they look at me and they kind of roll their eyes and they get the you know look on their face like they just swallowed vinegar. And I think, no, 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 nobody has to read this. This is this is for you. Yeah. Just sit down at the end of the day and write down whatever you want. So you don't need to make it. You don't need to make it pretty. It's never going to be judged. Doesn't need to be grammatically correct. Just write. Keep writing. What happens accidentally when people do that? Uh, is you get better at it. You know, my dad used to have to write letters back home, especially when he was overseas during World War II, you know, fighting the Hun in the snows of Belgium. You know, it, he hated snow. And, you know, had first time he kind of dealt with snow, he's digging a foxhole during the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium. He had to write letters back home, and he wanted letters to come back. And, 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 was, and then he came back, and then there, was, there wasn't a lot of need for letters. I mean, I would write letters back from college, and I would send postcards. And we had this kind of thing, but we'd talk on the phone if we really wanted to talk. So we did a lot of phone stuff. With the advent of the web, for the first time in years, he had to get back to – he knew how to type, but he hadn't typed in like 40 or 50 years. Hmm. He relearned how to type. And I sent him – you know, he's 95 years old now, and I sent him a long email – every week and we also hop on Skype and talk and you know sometimes we'll get on the phone and talk other times but that email I write can just be about the weather and about what happened to me and where I'm at and what's going on and I just kind of chatter like we used to do sometimes in letters which was that constant emotional connection thing mm -hmm. and I realized after a couple of years that what he did he prints them out and on paper, then he sits down in the chair he sat in, you know, 50 years ago when he get a letter from me from college mm. and read it wow. like like it was incoming mail. And, and I realized, wow, this has reinvigorated that lost art of uh, of writing to other people in, 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 in the most mundane way. It's, it's so important to do that. And people value those things right. much more than they do a phone call. Although they, they love to hear your voice, and, they, and Skype right. is great. He likes to just wait. He's still on the phone, but he's watching me on on the computer. Right. And uh, but we save letters. letters. Yeah, we save yes. letters. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, when you write to your dad, John, how different is that voice? That must be a unique voice unto itself. I don't spare him my wit. And because uh, he's a very bright guy, he was a he's a blue collar worker. He graduated high school, and, and in the thirties, in the depression, it had to go immediately to work at like seventeen, eighteen years old. Got married at twenty or twenty one. Uh, but he, you know, he's well read and very interested in stuff. So I don't spare him my vocabulary, and I don't spare him the occasional slang stuff, but it's a voice that, that he and I have. He doesn't write me back. Um, he, he apologizes for it every time I say, Dad, it's fine. We're on the phone. We'll just talk. You know, it's just, it's, it's something that he, he's not comfortable in, but he really loves getting the letters. And I, I totally understand that there are people in my life, even back when I was actually writing letters, that would never write me back. But when I see them after a period of time, they say, I've got all your letters that you wrote. You know, it's just, you know, I don't remember what I wrote. 
But it, it can be as breezy as talking about the weather. But yeah, I just channel it through that. I'm talking, it's just me and Pop sitting down talking. It's a private missing between the two of us. Mm. And, you know, some of the best writing that gets out into the public is, you know, they they've, uh, they found all of Mark Twain's letters to um, Helen Keller. Mm-hmm. Which were re- which were obviously not read to her, you know. But but you know he communicated with her for a long time, and that wasn't meant for publication. But he was long gone; she was long gone, and people published, you know, the the, the letters. This is right. private communication. This was gold for anybody interested in history. Right. The private thoughts, without the public face, without the the trappings of thinking hey, this is going to be read later and stuff. And a lot of guys, before they die, want to burn their journals. Right. Or they order their estate to burn the journals. And the reason is that stuff was never meant to be publicly um, uh, consumed. Right. But we're sure glad when that doesn't happen and it gets through and we find those journals like yeah. you know, Voltaire and all these guys. And it's like, I, I want to know the backstory. You know, I want to know what went on like that. I'm not going to judge him. You know, and, and that's what you're afraid of is being judged. Right. And writers are afraid of being judged as being not always on the ball writing when they're doing their their little whiny end of the day thing in their journal. You know, right. everybody was mean to me today. You know, right. <laughs> even the best writer in the world, you know, it comes down to that. The problem with journals is you get too far into your head, you, you do start whining. You start mm-hmm. complaining about things. And if people read the journal, they think you're a freaking serial killer, you know. And you know, or a depressive who needs to be rescued from, from the eventual suicide. And that's not the case at all. It's just you're getting it out of your head. And, and you know, I've been smiling and stuff. I've, I've told you the story. I was keeping a journal back when I was living in my car. I'd lost my job, my girlfriend, my place to live. I was on the road. I eventually wound up down in Southern California living at the beach. And that's where Think and Grow Rich fell off a bookshelf uh, shelf and landed in my lap. Mm. And I began my career like, like, like a, a year later. I was a lost and lonely soul. But I was in my car. I was. I had enough money saved up. I had gas. I was going up and down the coast, finding friends all the way from Seattle down into Mexico. Any friend who had a couch, I would look them up, show up, and sleep on the couch. You know. But I was essentially living out of the car, and I'd only stay for a few days and stuff. It was. It, it was an interesting time. But I wrote in my journal. I said, John, don't you dare look back on this and think you're having fun. You're not. You're miserable. You're lost. You don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. next. You you know there's no girlfriend in your life to 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 back you up. You don't have a job. You gotta you gotta straighten out a lot of stuff. Period. And when I read that years later, I, I just started laughing because I was having a blast. <laughs> you know, and I'm lecturing myself in the journal. <laughs> and then you read the next story that I have, and it was it's wild stories going on. It was just it was just one adventure after another because I was untethered. And, you know, everywhere I went, it's like, you know, the people were glad to see me go, not because they were tired of me. They said they couldn't handle the adventure anymore. You know, I was living this day by day. It was like, I'd come into town and their boring little lives would suddenly explode and all that stuff. We were, we were drinking a lot back then, too. But it was just, you know, it, it was wild times, you know. It's like having the, I was, I was the circus, you know, and I'd arrive in for a few days and it didn't stop for me. But I look back and I was having a blast, you know, I was sleeping on the, I think I wrote that. I was sleeping on the hood of my car. At the beach up in Northern California, in, in uh, way up by Eureka, with the waves crashing on the rocks below, there was nobody else in sight, and it was like a you know a half moon or a crescent moon, and I could see you know uh, whales breaching you know just you know in, in the moonlight off the coast, and and the gulls you know were still clattering. I'm sitting there, and I got my guitar, and I'm writing. I'm miserable, you know. <laughs> uh. 
Classic. That's just a little insight into the writerly life that you, you know, there has to be context to it when right. you do your journal stuff and to writing. But when you start thinking about that, when you write that, why not talk about being miserable? It's a better story when the context is given. I wasn't miserable. I wanted to be miserable. Why did I have to be miserable? Right. Yeah, we're off on a story right there. You wanted to be John Fonte. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing about journaling is that what I find so useful is that it allows me to, um, get my thoughts together. You know, it, I notice that my stories are better. My points are better made if I journal because yeah, I'll work out the sloppy parts in there. Sometimes I don't even get them tight yep. in the journal, but when I go to express them later, I've gotten the head trash out of the way and I can, I can express myself. Yeah, your story about how George Carlin, you know, seeing him early on in developing a bit was not a pleasant experience at all because right. he, he was very flat. He wasn't interested in, in making you laugh. He was interested in whether the piece, quote unquote, worked. And, and, you know, your reaction was part of that, but it wasn't everything. So it was, it was a grind. Right. We, we can trick our minds with journals. The mind loops around and around on a story, like what you didn't, what you did or didn't do or say at some party that embarrassed you or embarrassed your wife or did something. It'll go around and around and around. You can tell your brain, look, I wrote it down. It's here in the journal. We mm -hmm. don't need to loop anymore. And the brain will say, oh, okay, it's safe. It's there. It's like having a backup hard drive. And yeah. if you can train your brain to stop obsessing on stuff, because it's written down. It's here in the journal. It doesn't, it loops because it's afraid of forgetting it. It's afraid of forgetting it for all kinds of other psychological reasons. But so one, you can free your brain up to start obsessing on other bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing is, it's just what you said, working it out, working out the kinks and stuff. Gary Halbert had that tactic of looping mm -hmm. where I, I would be down often. I would be somewhere where we had some clients in town and the, and I'd see the clients like two or three days into the, into the visit or something. And they had this look on their face and I knew exactly what had happened. Mm -hmm. I said, let me guess. Gary just told you the same story that he told you yesterday and possibly the day before in, um, in exactly the same words and, and, and rhythm. And, and they look at each other and they look at me and say, yeah, it was, it was surreal. And I said, what you don't understand is that there were subtle changes between yesterday and today. He is working that out in his head. And when he hits that point where it's done, he will write it down and that will become your ad. Mm. But if you're not looking for it, you don't know that it was different. It's the same story because it's the same subject matter, but he's changing words and stuff. And he's he's maneuvering it through his process. For me, I could never do that because he's working out in his head, and that's all he can think about. And right. he, it's literally the ADD-like obsession or, or the compulsive uh, obsessive disorder where you're obsessing on this thing until, until it's right. Do it in your head. I do it the way you do it, which is the way a lot of writers do it. Write it down, get it down there, look at it a couple of days later, get, get cold, see whether it's trashy or whether it can work or whether you can rewrite it or redo it. But trying to just sit down and come up with something brilliant right off the bat, very few people do that. You, you get into this flow thing, and when you're in the flow, like we're talking about that Facebook post I wrote, mm -hmm. the flow means everything I was doing for a long period of time, everything I was writing was in that flow. So, you know, if I sat down and only edited it briefly or, you know, it was a five-minute process as opposed to a half-hour process to get that nice, sterling little bit of, of, of prose out, um, doesn't really matter. Um, 
what mattered was the pro- it went through the process. Right. You either go through the process quickly or you go through it slowly. But as a writer, you just go through the process. It can take you weeks sometimes, or it can take you a minute and a half, or sudden inspiration <clears throat> on a walk or in the shower or something. Right. You, you don't care. It's still the same process. The brain doesn't keep time. Mm. Brain doesn't keep time. I love that. And it's a it's a moment in time because it's a culmination of everything you've been walking around with in your head for the last day or so before that. Yep. And it, you, yeah. it, you would never write it the same way again, even maybe the next day or two days later. Uh, it, that's real. That's really true. That's why a good writer needs to carry around pen and paper. I know it's a drag, but just do it. You, you, we call them ink stained wretches because every pocket of every shirt you own should have an ink stain at the bottom where you put the pen in without retracting the, the, right. the tip. That's just wear it with a sign of pride. Wear it, wear it with the pride of being part of one of the oldest clubs in the universe. The, the scribes, the, the guys who were able to translate what was said into something that, that was written. And, um, uh, oh, there's one last point I was going to make. Uh, oh, the, just as a tip, my journals now, I, I don't actually have a physical journal that I write in, you know, turn to the next page and then the next page and write down. I instead write on my um, on my uh, iMac and I just pull up a fresh uh, Word doc mm-hmm. and I call them status reports. So I'll say status report, I'll date it. And then I'm off. And it's still a journal entry, and I keep all of those. I either keep them digitally in a file on my desktop, which can quickly be destroyed if the FBI ever comes by, or I, I, I for a long time, I was printing them out and keeping them in a file over here with my uh, January 15th letters. But the idea was the status report really clicked for me because it was like that, that lets me talk about the business, the personal, the uh, professional, all of the things that are going on. It's just a statue. It's just me talking to me about what's going on. It's, I start to clarify things. I will put snatches of copy in there. I will remind myself it's part to-do list, but it's a conversation I have. Sometimes it's a page. Sometimes it's eight pages. Uh, sometimes I go back later and, you know, do the next day and just add, you know, uh, and, and, you know, come back and say, okay, it's the next day and I was thinking about this. And I carry out my debates, my internal debates there. My brain knows it's safe, it's written down, it's in the file, and I can stop thinking about it and move on to other stuff or move on to a second edition of what I was thinking about there. And, you know, it's, you don't need, it's still journaling. How you do it doesn't much matter. You could do it, you know, uh, with um, uh, audio. Right. You could just do uh, voice memos to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, here's what I'm thinking about, blah, 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 blah. Then run it through Dragon and have it. You know, have, have it go to text and you can read it and stuff. But I seldom read my old journal entries because the fact of getting it down right. and either settling it or getting it off of my mind actually solves a lot of the stuff. Right. Or when I when I come into a situation, it's unconscious. It 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 has not been looping in my head. So I think, oh. What I meant to do, I, I've been thinking about you. I wanted to tell you blah. It's like I see the person and then the thought comes up and I, I you know, it's just part of the conversation. Yeah. And we've been talking for for an hour, Kevin, so we should probably. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a short call. So this is, uh, well, I knew this was going to be a great one. I'm thinking maybe we'll break this one into two parts um, because I really want people to digest. Sometimes people look at that iTunes and they go, oh, an hour 15, who has that? This is this is so I, meaty, man. I think we got a two parter here. So now we're ahead of the game again. That's fine. Huh? So now we're ahead now we're ahead of the game again. 
ahead of the game. Yes. All so, right. All right. Thank okay, you. Thanks uh, for doing this, John, yeah. and, and sparing your last bit of uh, battery. I hope your power comes back on soon. And uh, everybody, <laughs> I have to venture out of my, my out of, I, I unplugged everything in here, so I have to venture out of my cave-like cave. office and see if anything's operating in the rest of the house. Probably. The, oh God, the fridge is probably off. Oh man. Hey. All right. Oh yeah. It's just. Ten I'm, I'm living like a caveman. So, uh, all right. I will let you go. I know you got another call. Um, great talking with you, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks, pal. See you. Bye bye.